Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSAS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program. And I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Program. On this week's episode, we are going to be discussing all things artificial intelligence, machine learning, and Department of Defense. Well, Caitlin and I are so excited to be joined here today for a conversation on the Department of Defense, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. We have two excellent guests that have been on the ground for this journey to artificial intelligence. We are joined by Kristen Sproat, who's a principal at the Boston Consulting Group and a major in the United States Marine Corps Reserves. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for having me on today. Thank you so much for joining us. We are also joined by David Kiraj, the CEO and founder of CrowdAI. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. So I'm really excited for this conversation because you both have professional and personal connection to the Department of Defense's current AI journey. So you've been there from the beginning that brought us to the, the standing up and the founding of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Department of Defense's kind of central repository for artificial intelligence initiatives that is looking to bring AI into the DOD and scale it across the department. So I think a really great place for us to start the conversation today is to just have each of you share a little bit about your experience in that journey and what perspectives you're bringing to the table. So Kristen, over to you. Thanks, Lizzie. Back in uh, 2018, I was a reservist in the Marine Corps. I was a strategy consultant in my day job. And so the Marine Corps asked if I would activate for six months and come back to the Pentagon and work under Project Maven there. to do two things. One, they wanted help writing the DOD's artificial intelligence strategy, which would become the AI annex to the national defense strategy. And then they wanted to help designing a, a central organization to help DOD integrate AI quicker into the force and bring tech to the warfighter faster, similar to what Maven had been doing, but at a, at a larger scale for more technology. And so I came in on the strategy side, looked at the DOD's portfolio of AI work, looked at the different prioritized projects, but then also helped them look a little bit more broadly into what the actual critical enablers for long-term success are. So things like talent development, the relationships with the private sector, the foundational infrastructure needs that the DOD would need in order to actually be competitive and bring more AI technology to bear sooner. And then on the, the joint AI center side, it went from, uh, it was already sort of a concept when I came in, but I worked with a bunch of the services and a bunch of different people within Maven uh, and within the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence to really put together the concept and then the principles, the operating model. We put together the five-year funding needs plan, identified different national mission initiative areas, and really just put together the, the outline for what this organization could look like over the next several years and how to get it stood up and sort of off the ground and moving. So I was there for about six months. I left active duty back in September of 2018, but uh, super excited today to actually be chatting with David Key, who was able to take it from, uh, or who was able to interact with it once it actually got up and running out of a concept stage and into something real. Yeah, so David Key, that's a perfect segue uh, to, to jump over to you, who really engaged with the Jake from the technology perspective. 
Yeah, let me chat a little bit about what we do at CrowdAI and then talk about how we engage with the Jake. So uh, founded CrowdAI about half a decade ago, and we offer what I would argue is the leading software platform to build customized vision AI or customized computer vision, which is a field of AI that trains computers to interpret and understand the visual world. So essentially what we are trying to do is enable organizations to create their own computer vision algorithms by automating the analysis of still imagery or full motion video. Our platform is built to enable anyone to do this without a data science, AI, or coding knowledge required. So our software is used for a variety of use cases, including mapping wildfires in real time, humanitarian aid and disaster response, personnel search and rescue, infrastructure maintenance, and even beer fill line on a manufacturing line. So if you have imagery and video and people are looking at it, our platform helps you automate it. So our customers are across both Fortune 500 as well as the U.S. government, including flagship AI programs, including the Jake, different Air Force components, the NGA, Southcom. And as Kristen mentioned, we were actually the first computer vision company to work with the Jake and have worked with them since 2018. So our most recent work with the Jake was covered by Wired and Vice Media last fall. And it was really about our wildfire mapping model. Essentially, CAL FIRE and California Air National Guard are using this model on full motion video taken from MQ-9 drones that are flown over wildfire prone areas to map wildfires in real time. So we're currently exploring with the Jake about offering our platform or different components to larger programs, including the Joint Common Foundation. So we're constantly engaged with the Jake as well as AI programs across the DOD, providing to the USG various AI solutions, as well as a thought partner to guide both strategic direction on these programs, because we've been on almost, I would say, all of the DOD's AI flagship programs. And so I'm really excited to chat about the nuances of that and where I think AI across the U.S. government should go, um, especially considering external third parties. As someone who's not an AI expert or in this field at all, I feel like it's all moving really, really fast. So David, maybe you can kind of talk to us about where is the technology today? What is it really capable of? What are some near-term kind of successes and benchmarks you see coming up? And then what is like, I don't know, the end state or the long-term goals of, of some of these programs? Yeah, definitely. So I think this is a really exciting time to be in this space. And it's really exciting for a couple of reasons. One, there is still a relative scarcity of AI and machine learning expertise across the workforce. Two, I think there's a huge need for solutions that recognize the iterative nature of effective AI. And three, there's a very large need to create and manage training data for AI models, as well as just being able to manage data at a very large scale that then enables AI to actually be successful. So at AI, obviously, we focus on a lot of different components. And so let me step back and talk to you a little bit about the components at a very high level that enable a fairly strong end-to-end AI pipeline. So I'm going to specifically talk about computer vision, but the same concept can really be extended to other types of AI. So you need to have data management. You need to know where your data is. You need to know who has access to the data. You need to know, you know, the metadata associated with that data. You know, for example, zoom level or types of, is it red, green, blue, or EO or infrared? Once you know where your data is, once you know how much data you have and who has access to the data, then you need to help create an ontology or label that data in ways that it probably isn't automatically labeled from when you pull that data directly from a device. And so what does that mean? So when it comes to computer vision, you need to teach the computers, or when it comes to machine learning in general, one part of deep 
machine learning is supervised learning, which is you teach the computer through examples. And so the examples are created by labeling the data. So there's multiple ways to label the data. It's, you could say, for this image, I see a cat or I don't see a cat. There's other ways, which is in this image, this is a box around a cat. And then finally, you know, there's another way, which is called segmentation, which is these are all the pixels that represent a cat. So you need to create examples that then the computer could learn. So this involves a workforce of sorts. Luckily at the government, there's 2 million people that work across the US government. So there's a lot of people that have expertise in that particular area and look at imagery on a daily basis. So I think that's why AI can be very successful across the US government because there's a lot of people that already look at the imagery and video to help create these examples. So once you create enough sufficient amount of examples, once you create a diversity of examples, and we could talk a little bit about diversity of data later because you don't wanna bring in bias into your machine learning models, then you have to build models. And there's a lot of ways to build models depending on the type of training data you create. And then a very important part of the end-to-end -end pipeline is model testing and evaluation. Is the model that you've built accurately and answering the question that you're trying to solve? And then finally, deployment. I think it's really important that models don't just stay in R&D, you take them into production, the end user can have access to it, and the end user can give feedback based on how good the model is to continuously retrain. And I think that's what's really key about AI, and that's something that the U.S. government may not be as used to buying, which is AI is very, very iterative. And so you can't just buy software off the shelf and just set it and forget it. And that's, I think, why building you know, the strategy around AI is different from things that they have bought in the, in the past. Yeah, that's really interesting because we're talking about technology that sounds... Um you know, it's not as fantastical as the hype would make it out to be, but I hear a lot of things that are beyond the technology. So we're talking about data management and testing and talent. Uh, and so I think we see this kind of the journey to AI as part of this broader conversation about a general increased use of digital technologies um, so that, you know, digital transformation that organizations go through. So Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about what does that process look like and how are organizations adapting to this increased use of digital technologies more generally. I mean, this is something that I think is a really, uh, I don't want to say it's unique to DOD, but it's a really fascinating look at a large organization with a long-term history and a very specific culture suddenly finding itself in a rapidly changing context. And so traditionally, if you think about the last, you know, multiple decades, DOD has been the driver behind a lot of technology development. It's where all the money was concentrated and it pumped it into private companies to do a lot of the development that the military then adopted and used. You know, everything from GPS to text messaging basically, you know, had some sort of origin with, with DOD funding. But in the last few decades, especially as the amount of data has exploded and we've realized its utility and its ability to be monetized, the private sector has really been charging forward. And now you're looking at private companies with market caps of over a trillion dollars and they have, they're reinvesting that, they're pulling more data and they're reinventing the technology that they have on a constant basis because they can reach billions of people simultaneously. And so I, I think that has impact for the military in two ways that they're trying to catch up with. One is that there's a lot of technology that's out there and is either usable or close to usable, but needs better integration and support with the military. 
But it's not necessarily in the traditional players that the procurement system has been built around. And it's not used to, the military is used to having these long-term time horizon acquisitions that take years, a very formal procurement process that's been built to make sure that it's fair across the U.S. But at the same time, it excludes a lot of those smaller players who don't necessarily have the time to navigate it. And it really puts up barriers to these new rapidly, these smaller companies that are rapidly developing technology who also may not have the inherent expertise to take their product and adapt it to a defense use case. Um, So that's the first piece. The second piece is just the culture and the pace of change along with this technology. And David Key alluded to this. The military very much has a platform acquisition mindset where it's a multi-year or a multi-decade development timeline to get a piece of hardware and software that is pretty much ready off the shelf. It's been proven, it's been tested. You know, there's, by the time it gets in the hand of the warfighter, they get training on it, it's good to go. There's maybe some iteration, but like it's, it's pretty done. But when you think about you know, the private sector and software, meanwhile, you know, I get a new operating, updated operating system on my phone like once a month at this point. And I learn the tweaks. I can give feedback to Apple and adjust it. And they've made the process really seamless to learn new technology and to adjust. And we, as the consumers, simultaneously adjust our behavior. I like to think of the military's ability to do this as kind of like your grandparents with a smartphone, right? They know it's got utility, but the learning, they haven't been there with the journey. And so the learning curve is very high. And this is kind of like the military with new AI tech. It's just a very different mindset. They're used to having something that is polished, ready to use. They get helps them accomplish their mission. When in reality, when you think about AI integration, it's going to fail and you test it out and then you try something new and it's a very, it's going to be incremental change, which can be frustrating, but is how this technology gets better and gets adapted for what the end user actually needs and how you figure out how to adapt what the end user's processes are in the interim. You know, when the iPhone came out, initially people were still printing maps offline, right? And like bringing them with them. It it took some transition time to be like, oh wait, I can be in my car and pull up the directions and just use that. I don't also need the GPS in my car and the printed map, right? It took some time to transition to over using that new technology. And we're still sort of in that weird phase of we we don't know how to change our processes as we're acquiring this new tech. There is a silver lining though, which I think at least in the last five years, there've been a lot of interest in the US government in incorporating AI and other technology. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of noteworthy entities that are trying to efficiently incorporate commercial technologies. So there's the Future of Defense Task Force, DIU, AFWorks, Defense Innovation Board, InQtel, and then more recently, the National Security Commission on AI. And I think that they all are trying to offer recommendations and insight in how to start bringing in tangible steps towards incorporating new technology that's very iterative uh, and not just to set and forget it. So I think that there are silver linings here. Hey, Vicky, I'd be interested in hearing from you, from your perspective of like having worked with private sector companies and having worked with the Jake, with software that's designed for untrained people or, you know, AI less literate people, if you will. Like if you saw differences in how ready they were to be able to use your software and get up to speed, or if, uh, if there is sort of a baseline, especially for younger users where they can just sort of understand and get off and running. Yeah, I, I think both across the US government and Fortune 500, I think there's still a lot of learning. A lot of these ideas around AI 
is still very much locked at, up at in academic institutions or in like elite tech, tech companies. It was very interesting because when we started, we noticed that there was a much more quicker adoption by the U.S. government because they are very familiar with manually reviewing imagery and video. That is a huge part of their workforce. And so the, the actual understanding of how to get from I review imagery and video, I create examples of imagery and video to there is a technology to help automate this was actually a much easier transition in the government than in private sector when they collect a lot of imagery and video, but they don't actually spend the time to review it as much. And so actually it was, it was quite interesting when we, when we thought about the adoption curve the adoption curve for different parts of AI are very different. In the US government, we noticed that training data and understanding imagery and video and what things to look for, much higher. But where the data is and the data management piece, much lower because a lot of the data is on-prem. On the commercial side, they are actively thinking about moving all their data into the cloud, but then subsequent, where is the workforce to help create annotations and training data and examples is a lot further slower on the curve. But I think at a very high level, I think the there's still a lot to be done around talking about how AI and ML is not a panacea and that the best cases are when there's robust, diverse, and appropriately labeled data. And that both the private sector and the public sector need to prioritize solutions that take that into account. Don't solve AI because it's a very cool use case. Solve it for things that you know can at least be automated, you know, and to help the workforce get lifted up a little bit. I would uh, I would love to second that. I think that was very much uh, something that I, I saw and had a lot of conversations about when I was in uniform because people hear AI, and especially in a military context, their next leap a lot of the time is autonomous fill in the blank and walking them back down, not only to, oh, we're not talking, you know, autonomous vehicles. We're not even necessarily talking like autonomous drones. I'm talking like, can we automate the expense report system? Because you probably lose millions of hours a year on people trying to file expense reports and they do it poorly. And you could save a lot. That's super unsexy, super unsexy, but the technology already exists and is out there. And like, getting people to focus on things that they can sort of chunk out and start with and just learn how the technology exists, get some of that baseline muscle memory in place, form some of those interactions with private sector companies that don't necessarily have any sort of existing defense interactions, and then get just get people comfortable with the idea of that technology and figure out what gaps are in your infrastructure and help fund the journey bit by bit from there, I think is super critical. And it's, uh, it's again, it's often the... Sometimes there's the sexy use cases. I think the wildfires and the the you know humanitarian assistance operations are really fascinating ones for vision applications. But there's also so many that kind of already exist out there that are just ripe for military and private sector coordination that, you know, little by little we can start building up the capabilities within the force and those connection points. Yeah, so I think that's a I mean a really interesting point a few interesting points that you both are making. Um, so, you know, we're referencing the Future Defense Task Force report that came out in 2020. And one of the recommendations was that Congress and the Department of Defense required that every major defense acquisition program should evaluate at least one AI or autonomous alternative prior to funding. 
But what I'm hearing from you guys today is that might not be the best approach because that seems to imply that AI is the solution for everything. But instead, we need to be thinking through this a little bit more carefully. And the you know true, really great applications of artificial intelligence may be in those unsexy areas like business operations or even simple robotic process automation that can help us automate these kind of tedious, manual, boring tasks. So are there any kind of other ways that, you know, we should be thinking about, you know, how do we refine and, and further thinking about where the Department of Defense and Congress need to be thinking about artificial intelligence? Because there does seem to be a focus on how do we keep the ball rolling? How do we get the department pointed in the right direction with respect to artificial intelligence? From my perspective, first of all, I do think it's a good prompt from Congress to evaluate, make sure you're evaluating other, if AI capabilities might make sense. Because what it does is it, it it forces procurement to get broken out of a paradigm that they have of thinking like, here's what the blast plane was, here's what I want the next plane to look like. When that's not necessarily the right question, the right question is what is the mission I need to accomplish and what is the best tool to accomplish that mission? And I think it's good to force them to reframe that question. Now, the answer honestly probably isn't yet, oh yes, autonomous vehicles. But, you know, given the, given the development timeline for, say, the F-35 in another 20-some-odd years, that actually might be the answer, and we need to start thinking about that now. Beyond that, though, I think, uh, I think there's a couple things. So for one, for the DoD broadly, like, there's, a, there's always a fear of failure. We purchased this thing, it didn't work, we wasted taxpayer money. And I think the truth is, especially with some of these more nascent technologies that we're trying to incorporate, it's not going to work the first time. Maybe not the third time. It's a continuous improvement cycle. And, uh, and you do need to be able to show progress, but you also need to expect that it's not going to be exactly what you want the first couple times around. And I, I think that's okay, because if you look at the breakdown of actually where your, your time and your cost goes, actual AI algorithms aren't very expensive. <laughs> it's adapting the rest of your infrastructure to support big data and machine learning. And regardless of whether or not your algorithm works, getting that infrastructure tailored and cloud-based and primed to be able to continue moving forward is actually way more important than whether or not that one particular algorithm worked. So one is, is understanding that just because a piece of the technology fails doesn't necessarily mean that in the broader journey, this, is, this was a failure. I think the other thing we, we talked about a little bit already is that AI is expensive and there's a ton of use cases Build confidence by starting with the things that we can actually get off the ground. And they'll, they'll be the unsexy things, but they'll build the muscle memory and the core skill sets that we need to actually have success later on. And then the other thing I think is really thinking about new talent models, because not only do you need a way to bring in the most skilled people who have that technical hat and the AI training to be able to mesh both the warfighter viewpoint and the developer viewpoint, but you also need just your basic warfighter trained in how to operate this way and how to think about adjusting their processes and being creative based on the technology that they're trying to adopt. I think most of our younger workforce kind of understands that, but then it sort of gets trained out of them in the military too, right? Like you go to you go to your you know school and it's this is the way things happen and you have to do it X, Y, and Z, which is good. And I'm not saying that that's the wrong approach, but I think there's another layer on top of that that's, if I gave you this complex problem, can you be creative enough to come up with a new, like, new way to use this technology or a new answer? And are you comfortable 
bringing that up and experimenting a little bit. And then our managers need to be comfortable letting people explore with, with those new technologies as they're adopting. And from my perspective, it's, it's a new model of talent, both the professional talent and the, the way we treat experimentation and organizational learning, even at the lowest level in the military. Yeah, I definitely agree with Kristen here, which is I think the U.S. government should prioritize solutions that take into account this very large AI skills gap. For example, that's why we built a large part of what we do at CrowdAI, which is how do we build these code-free AI enablement tools to convert a large portion of the workforce to at least be educated about what would be good AI and ML in the long term. So I want to give you a specific example, right? So there's a lot of NGA analysts out there. Their workflow is I'm looking for one type of ship and looking for that and we'll draw a box around that. So already there's part of the skill set already there to create training data. But if they took it one step further and said, for a model, I can't just find one thing in that image. Let me draw boxes around all the ships and then also have you know, a different color box on that particular ship of interest, then you're actually changing the workforce to think about how to create data and how to create training data ready for models, right? So a lot of the work that they're already doing is one step towards creating training data, but a lot of the data that the government already has and sits on is not prepped for AI and ML. What I'm trying to say is the US government already has a lot of data. A lot of that data is partially labeled. And if you teach folks how to think about AI and ML based on how the data needs to be created for AI and ML, then you can speed up the development process and speed up kind of the time to value for the people on the ground that are already looking at imagery and video. We're, we're almost there. And, and like the, the reason U.S. government is a really great place to start is because, as I mentioned before, they've got the imagery and video, they've got the people, and they already have people essentially creating training data up to a certain extent. It seems like they're at least a step or two there. They just need to kind of reconfigure what they're doing to go the rest of the way to better incorporate these practices into kind of the process that already exists. Yeah, I think I think partially. I mean, we see this in the private sector all the time too. Like it's easy to buy a model and then you can, you know, it takes a while to to update the data and then tweak the model. The process change on the people side, not just for how to label it, but then what do you do with it once it's been labeled is actually the hardest part. And that's what takes the most time. From my understanding of this conversation, we're maybe close on the like tweaking how we think about interacting with the raw data, but there's still a whole different piece of once we have that output, what do we do with it? How do our processes change? Not only for the analyst, but when we think about ethically incorporating what AI recommendations are into larger military processes, that's a huge piece of the discussion. How do we make sure we're doing so responsibly? How do we make sure that we have the right oversight processes, that we really understand what's happening behind the algorithm, and that we're comfortable making decisions based on it? And that's a whole piece that I think we really haven't even opened that can of worms significantly yet. And that'll be something interesting to, to watch in the future. Yeah, this kind of all seems like what, you know, what we should be paying attention to maybe in the next five years of starting to talk about these questions in policy circles, having our government and policymakers really take a deep dive in, in some of these so that we can set ourselves up for when, you know, we're more fully able to adopt and, and use AI and ML. 
Um, is there anything else in the field that we should be watching for? Yeah, I just want to reflect what Kristen said, which is there was recently a report uh, that came out of the Jake around responsible AI. As I mentioned before, like I think you need to help arm the workforce that looks at imagery and video with the understanding of what makes good data, what makes a good diverse data set, what makes things unbiased, both in the training data side, but once the model has been trained, how do we retrain it with less bias? How do we make sure there's less false positives and false negatives? And then that's just part of the model iteration. But then finally, like, is it actually helping me do my job? Is it helping me do my job more effectively? Is it helping me do my job with less bias? All of these things need to be taken into account when building models. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you guys would want to emphasize to our listeners or something that we did touch on that you just think is the most important thing that we should be looking into? I was going to say, and actually, David, you might be a better positioned to answer this, but I, like one of the things that I'm not as close to, and I don't know how it's moving forward, is how we think about our legacy infrastructure for DOD. Like I was talking about before, our procurement cycles are really long, and, and we've had a lot of recent movement, I guess, in the discussion about moving to cloud, but that's taking a while for various reasons. But I think to really unlock the potential power of, of AI, especially ML, there's, there's a lot of technology development that needs to happen, but there's also uh, this sort of tension in, in how we upgrade our infrastructure and, and to where. Even just having the right processing power on our computers to be able to manage some of these algorithms. It's a lot of infrastructure to try and upgrade across a very large organization, which means a lot of dollars, again, and for unsexy things. And I mean, I don't know that if there's been major progress made in the last couple of years, that's something kind of, I'm kind of looking out for. I mean, I don't know if you ran into any issues with that, David Key, or, or like, I guess any with either private or public sector clients, if, if that's something that you see as a barrier to be able to, to advance. Yeah. So at Cartier, we realize that everybody's different parts of the adoption cycle. So we actually help build a lot of the infrastructure. We do both for on-premise deployment, which is more popular on the US government side, and then cloud development. I do think that cloud makes it a lot easier for people to set up the infrastructure a lot more quickly, but there are obviously barriers to entry from the U.S. government side because you want to make sure all your data is secure, certain people have access to it, and things like that. So um, you're right, infrastructure is a huge piece. Luckily, there are some technologies that are making infrastructure up and running a lot quicker, like NVIDIA. So I think we're getting there, and I think that the barrier to entry is there, but the infrastructure has been built in other places that we could copy that kind of that playbook. And that's what I'm really excited for. And that's why a lot of some of the the programs that we were already have been on across the DOD have been already built. And what about one thing we thought a lot about was purchasing authorities and how to try and work within, you know, all of the guidelines and the legal mandates and whatnot, but really make the procurement process work better for a broader segment of the private sector where we were trying to adopt technology from. And there's a lot of different ways to think about doing it. You've got the other transaction authorities and some other ways of improving the timeline to get procurement to happen faster. But I'm wondering from your perspective, have you seen any movement there? Yeah, so we actually have some recommendations here because we've probably been on every single type of contracting you know, from sub to GSA to, you know, SIBRs. Um, and so we feel we've been 
on most of the different types of contracting vehicles. So we think that because of the iterative nature of AI, you need a flexible approach to contracting that enables this ongoing licensing. And this is the case for both computer vision as well as like an end-to-end -end infrastructure pipeline. And this is mostly because you want to make sure that the advancement in AI architectures and research are continuously integrated throughout the software updates. I think that's really, really important. As, as we mentioned time and time again on this podcast, it's not set it and forget it. So we recommend the use of contracting vehicles that enable iterative development. So broad and IDIQs, um, so indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, through which task orders could be quickly executed for ongoing work. We recommend statements of objectives rather than statements of work or performance work statements, because that places the focus on directional guidance for intended operational outcomes rather than like restrictive guidance for inputs. You know, since the business of AI models are based on commercial licensing rather than labor services, fixed firm price contracts should be the preferred norm um, rather than time and materials or cost plus contracts. You know, we've got a couple of other ideas, but we, we've noticed that for at least the, the flagship AI programs, they are moving towards flexible licensing versus, you know, services-based contracts. And then the last thing is, is rights and assertions. Perpetual rights is often difficult for a really small business. And again, it fundamentally goes against the understanding of being agile for software development in the AI cycle. And then finally, the last thing is, is the DOD needs to help signal where development should happen. Is it Nipper, Zipper, JWix? And then they need to commit to helping companies get into those environments. That would help really move the needle forward for commercial companies to actually build AI where it needs to be deployed. Well, that was excellent. Thank you both. We have covered so much ground today with so many action items for the AI community, for Congress, for the Department of Defense. We could certainly spend, spend much longer diving into any one of these topics, but I want to thank you both so much for joining us today, for sharing all of your, your wisdom and experience and expertise. I do look forward, we will have uh, an episode coming up uh, in the future on software acquisition and digital modernization. So we'll get to dive into a lot of these data management and software topics that you both have raised. I know our colleagues that work on defense budget and acquisition will be super excited to hear that we're talking about IDIQs and small business initiatives uh, and all of these contracting vehicles. So you, you've kept our colleagues at CSIS happy. But again, I just want to thank you uh, from both me and Caitlin for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is fantastic. Okay, wow. What a great discussion we just had with Kristen and Dave Key. We're so grateful for their expertise. Lindsay, as an AIX policy expert who works in this field all the time, like what really stood out to you during this conversation? I, I think a few things really stood out. One, uh, I think it's just like really awesome that we got to have an all-lady lineup. We got to have an author of the AI strategy, like the person who wrote the thing that we are now doing. And we got to have David Key, who is the like first company to work with the Jake. It's just really kind of a neat set of people to bring together to have that conversation. I mean, and I think there's so many broad themes that we hit on. So like one, just the continual emphasis on process was really fascinating. And if Bombshell was still going and Rada, Lauren, and Aaron were still recording, like we could have a whole crossover episode on process. Like it was just so fascinating that so much of the challenge of getting the technology in the door is going to be about adapting, evolving, 
rethinking the process around the actual technology for it to be effective. And I don't think we're having that conversation. I loved Kristen's antidote about how DOD is like your grandma with an iPhone. That was super approachable for me. And I was like, oh, I, <laughs> I'm there. I understand. This is how I feel about social media. That was an excellent one. And it actually rings true because I often use the iPhone and phone as an example of trying to explain AI to people. Well, and it really gets to also what came up a lot, which is flexibility and iteration. I mean, we see the iPhone update its hardware and its software every year for hardware and and multiple times during the year for software. And it it magically does it overnight. And how we need to bring in that kind of mindset for DoD systems and AI in particular. Oh, yeah. No, the, the flexibility and iteration, the themes that we saw, I mean, across everything, across the contracting process of how do we get software in the department, the process, the color of money, like even the ability to spend dollars on one thing versus another, the like rigid system that the DOD has breaks down when you talk about software and AI. So thinking about how do we make the department as a whole more flexible, more adaptable, more resilient and and faster, because the theme was like, this is moving really quickly. But I think that The pace of of development in the commercial sector is really interesting. When they were talking about how the challenges for the adoption of AI and machine learning in the private sector are sometimes different than the adoption in the Department of Defense was a really interesting nuance because so often in these conversations about the Department of Defense and machine learning, it's all about looking out to the private sector and seeing what they've done and how do we do that. But that nuance of there are actually some things that the DOD is better at, for example, reviewing images. So if we just have that like mindset shift of now I'm not just reviewing images, I'm creating a training data set. That's a strength that the department has and that may not be as natural a shift for the private sector to make. So I thought that was really interesting and and brought out this like broader conversation of, I guess, two things like one building in that we have to think about our process differently, but really how much this lack of a baseline understanding and education is holding us back. And it would be something as simple as the example of when they were talking about, you know, if we're creating data for the first time in the DoD, we need to be thinking about how are we making this data AI ready? It's not just, am I reviewing images? I need to be labeling the images. I need to be creating an AI data training set. And I need to be thinking about this from the very beginning. And unless that baseline education and understanding and the workforce is there, that's not going to get built in and baked into these programs. Well, and I imagine it's different people in different programs, right? Someone might create the data that we're talking about or review the image that then later gets used by somebody else or later in the process is wrapped into an AI process. But at the moment when that person's labeling it, they might not be interacting with that at all, but they need to be trained to process the data in a certain way that it can be then used later, which seems like an immense challenge, honestly. Yeah. So it's really when when we talk about having an enterprise-wide approach, like we're talking about the entirety of the defense enterprise. When we talk about having AI-ready data or having data that is, is portable and usable, the DOD just recently put out, you know, their memo on creating data advantage. And there's, there's talk of having, you know, can all programs be AI-ready? It really comes down to 
you know, do all of these people across the enterprise and disparate programs in the military services on the civilian side in, you know, the Army, Air Force, Navy, like across everything, do they have the requisite understanding to be thinking about this? And it, it's, you know, not everybody has to be like the best programmer, but I need people to understand the basic concepts. Like if I'm working with data or creating new data, I need to be thinking about how do I make this data AI ready, even if maybe today I'm not thinking about bringing AI into my workflow. But I'm super curious, Caitlin, as somebody who is new to AI, what really stood out to you? Yeah, I was really surprised by the early stages that it seems like we're at with AI in DOD. For some reason, I just assumed that it was like, and maybe this is the this is the problem, right? Is that people who don't work in AI assume that it's much farther along than it actually is. So in space, we receive a ton of data from our space situational awareness. So radars and satellites that track objects in space. So we know where satellites are moving on orbit. We know where the debris is. Um, it's critical for normal operations. It's critical to make sure things don't run into each other on orbit or that something doesn't hit the International Space Station where people live. And we often talk about all of this data. Oh, AI, machine learning, this could be a great help because you know what? It could detect the anomalies, the pieces of data that don't make sense or when satellites seemingly disappear because they move in orbit so they're not where the radar expected them to be next. And that could be incredibly helpful. But I just thought, you know, we just talk about it like you could just drop this in and it, it sprinkle a little fairy dust of AI on it and it's going to solve our problems. But it's, you know, now I see that we, including myself and other policy, you know, thinkers and learners and makers like need to learn about the process of AI, how it works so we can make better recommendations than just saying, yes, adopt AI. We actually have to talk about the nuances of how to train that workforce, how to get our space data AI ready, even if it's not ready at this moment to be used in that kind of way. Yeah. And those are all things that are going to take a lot of time. And I think the interesting thing that comes out in this conversation is it's not a problem with the technology itself. It's all of the stuff around the technology is where we need to be focusing on. So that was, I think, just like... It was, it was super interesting to hear those, those broad themes, you know, talking about, you know, we touched on talent models and thinking through, do we even have, you know, the right, the right talent in place? How do we get the right talent in place? We talked so much about data. It, it makes me think back, like, I need to go do some investigating on, you know, the Department of Defense and the armed services have their chief data officers. So are those people empowered? Do they have the authorities they need? Are they placed within organizations to be effective? Because data just kept popping up in the conversation the entire time. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. You guys can visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will see you in two weeks for a conversation on quantum sensing with two more excellent speakers. 